Okay, everybody, thank you for coming. Um, I think this is going to be an incredibly interesting discussion. I just wanted to mention before we begin, and I introduce our fabulous speakers, um, that there are position statements representing various organizations that have opined on this. Um, there is one from the New York State Veterinary, Medi Veterinary Technicians Association. There's uh, one from the New York State Veterinary Medical Society. Uh, there's one from Wilson Eller, which is a law firm, and this was written again on behalf of the New York State Veterinary Medical Society. There is something, uh, one from su a supporting statement uh, that's declawing myth versus fact from the Humane Society of the United States, the Humane Society Veterinary Medical Association, the PAW Project, and the PAW Project New York State. There is um, a handout that lays out 15 solid reasons to prohibit non-therapeutic declawing by Dr. Jefferson, to my left. There is um, another memo of support uh, from the Humane, again from the Humane Society Veterinary Medical Association. Um, and there is a wonderful handout from Dr. Hart, who will be joining us, is joining us via Skype, the miracle of Skype. Um, about preventing objectionable scratching by feline family members. I love that. So I will, um, unlike what's going on in the rest of the country, we have, so to jump back for a minute, um, there are also uh, a doc, the, the PAW Project documentary that's out on the table. If you'd like to take a copy, please do so. Um, there are these various position statements, which you, you feel free to take those. There's also, I think, a bumper sticker or something. So what's ever out there, um, Dr. Conrad said take. The less, more you take, the less she has to carry home. Um, one thing I wanted, the other, the reason we're here tonight is because legislation, as you guys have probably already know, um, has happened all over the country sort of, it's working its way east. Um, there's, I believe, eight cities in California. Denver, Colorado recently passed it. There's been legislation in various other states, which one of these people who are experts on um, will go over. Uh, but I wanted to acknowledge the fact that this started in New York State with the PAW Project and the, New the Humane Society Veterinary Medical Association working with um, Doc, uh, Assembly Member Linda Rosenthal, um, who has uh, put a bill in to ban declawing of cats. Uh, she's also joined by Senator Griffo, who is a Republican in the Senate, which is a wonderful thing. We like to have Republicans in the upper house or the other house, and we like to have it um, in the Assembly. Uh, I also wanted to acknowledge that Linda Rosenthal has been a real champion of uh, carrying animal welfare bills in this state. Uh, recently, in, she passed the Beagle Freedom Bill, which says that beagles that are used in research have to be put up for adoption. She's uh, got Noah's Ark Bill signed into law, which allows pets to board public transportation with their owners during natural disasters in order to evacuate to safety. That's for the welfare of the pets. It's for making their owners or guardians happy, but it's also for the safety of the first responders because we know people are not going to leave their pets. And then finally, um, the law was passed to reunite lost pets with their owners by embracing the um, technology of chips. 
and requiring that shelters uh, check within a certain amount of time. There's a task force to study it, but they must check within 24 hours um, as a way to reunite the pets with their people. So I just wanted to acknowledge um, Assemblymember Rosenthal's um, leadership in the area of animal welfare bills. Um, so without further ado, let me introduce our wonderful panelists who I really appreciate the hard work that they've put into this. I'll start right to my left with Dr. Eileen Jefferson. She's the Director of Veterinary Ethics uh, and the New York State Legislative Affairs Director of the PAW Project. She also serves as the New York State Representatives for the Humane Society Veterinary Medical Association. She graduated from Cornell, another Cornell graduate right there, in 2003 with a degree in biological sciences and received her DVM with honors from the University of Illinois College of Veterinary Medicine in 2008. A former staff veterinarian at the San Francisco SPCA, she now operates her own innovative animal advocacy-based practice, Ethical Veterinary in Ulster County, New York. She regularly joins with the Humane Society of the United States to bolster its animal advocacy campaigns and to assist with its rescue efforts in the field. We also have Dr. Jennifer Conrad, who founded the PAW Project in 1999 and has been carrying the water on this bill for a very long time. She's really the one who started it and serves as the nonprofit's director. The PAW Project is an international organization with over 40 veterinary directors whose mission is to end declawing through education and legislation and to relieve the suffering of animals who have been declawed. Dr. Conrad graduated from UC Berkeley prior to entering UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine where she earned her DVM degree. Dr. Conrad, as an, as an exotic animal and wildlife veterinarian, has been involved in many programs to protect and enhance the lives of wildlife on six continents. She's a passionate advocate of animal welfare, having seen the suffering and exploitation of animals, the destruction of wildlife habitat, and unnecessary hunting, which threatens the well-being of animals and the survival of any species. And she's received a really lot of awards. And then finally, and I am so thrilled that Dr. Uh, ben Hart is with us today. Um, he had really jumped in at the last minute and he's on Skype and I certainly hope he can hear us. Um, he's the Distinguished Professor Emeritus at UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. Actually, Dr. Conrad was a pupil of his apparently. Ben Hart has had a long-standing, passionate interest in animal behavior. Upon entering veterinary school a few decades ago, he noticed that animal behavior was conspicuously absent from the teaching and practice in veterinary medicine, and he decided to pursue this discipline within veterinary medicine. He received a PhD in neurobiology and behavior at Minnesota after he finished his DVM there. He joined the faculty in the veterinary school at UC Davis and has been there ever since. He helped to establish the American College of Veterinary Behavior he mentored many residents. Dr. Hart has a current list of over 200 publications. He is a fellow of the Animal Behavior Society and the International Society of Anthrozoology. In 2013, he was a recipient of the AVMA Bustad, I think, Companion Animal Veterinarian of the Year Award. So let's just give a warm welcome to our speakers. Um, Unlike what's going on in many other parts of the country, this is the New York City Bar Association, and we have polite presentations. We respect all opinions that are presented in this association. So we are going to have a presentation by these three wonderful veterinarians, and then we'll have a chance for Q&A. Um, but this is 
we're having this to have a thorough discussion of this really important topic, especially because there will be, there is legislation on the state level, there may be legislation on the city level, and we really want the public to be educated and for everybody here to be able to go out and educate other people about this issue. Uh, so without further ado, I want to turn it over to Dr. Jefferson. Thank you. And uh, can you hear me? Okay. Um, Thank you, first of all, on behalf of the Humane Society Veterinary Medical Association for inviting us here tonight to talk on declawing. Um, we are not only strongly supportive of the declaw legislation that's currently pending in New York, we also are very supportive of you as lawyers having the most relevant, the best, and the most current facts so that you can make a strong argument on the issue of declawing. So with that, I will get started. So declawing is a procedure that tends to be a bit misleading right from the start. The medical term for declawing is onychectomy. That, that word onic, that comes from the Greek root for nail or claw, and ectomy comes from the surgical term for cutting, cutting out. So onychectomy, it would seem to be just the removal of the nail, but it's actually the removal of the last toe bone of each toe from which the nail grows out and the nail. So that amounts to a series of 10 to 18 very painful. Is that good? Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm, I'm not as short as I thought I am. <laughs> so so uh, the tendons, the ligaments, the bones, the, and, and the nerves are severed, and the bone is removed in a, in a declaw. So it's not just a matter of removing the nail. And that's always the first myth to dispel, because a lot of people do think when they go to pursue this procedure that it is just a removal of the nail. So this is a diagram of a cat toe. Um, I'm going to see if I can use this here. This bone over here we refer to as phalanx 1. This is the, the first toe bone. This is P2 or phalanx 2. This is P3, which is, I'll reference this a bit in the presentation. This is the bone that's taken out when a declaw happens with the nail. So that's the line of amputation right there. So the bone comes right out with the nail. Many of you probably have used these nail trimmers to trim the nails on your own dog or cat. Uh, that's what this instrument was originally, in, that's what this instrument was originally intended for, was just to trim the nails of dogs and cats. It was never intended to be used as a surgical device, but, but that is actually one of the most common methods for declawing, is to cut right through that line of amputation with, with the, um, the nail trimmer. Another common method is to use a scalpel blade, but that's, that's actually not as common as using the, the nail trimmer. So there are a lot of known complications of declawing. Um, these are all supported by the research. Infections, so there can be abscesses in the soft tissue. There can also be osteomyelitis, which is infection in the bone. It's a lot more difficult to treat. It requires long-term antibiotics. And depending on what caused it, it can also require the cats to have a revision surgery to go back under anesthesia and have these problems corrected. Uh, bleeding is always a potential problem. Joint pain, back pain, and changes in mobility can all happen with declawing. And behavioral problems, uh, litter box avoidance and biting, you might hear people say that there's not research to support this. There's plenty of research to, to support this, especially in the last year. There's been a paper that, that came out that I'll get to. Um, loss of self-defense and normal stretching and muscle condition conditioning. And 
with any surgery, there's a risk of anesthesia complications. And one of the most common and the most serious problems is retained bone fragments. So the bone might not be completely removed. And that, of course, creates a, a very painful problem for these cats. So this is actually an x-ray of a, of a cat that was declawed. And you can see, just in this diagram, I, I showed the, the P1, P2. These, these little kind of amorphous, asymmetric fragments here, those are the toe bones that were supposed to be removed in the declawing surgery, but they did not come out. Now, veterinarians used to refer to this as kind of like a botched surgery or an anomalous surgery it, when this happens. It's not the case. Um, this past year, research came out that showed that 63% of, of x-ray declawed cats actually had these bone fragments. So this is very common. Um, it's important with, with those bone fragments to understand that cats, unlike people, do not walk plantigrade, which is flat on their feet. They walk actually with the weight coming down on their toes. So where a human, it might be dispersed throughout the heel and the sole. On a cat, they, they bear their weight right down on the toes. So for them to have that kind of fragment, is, it's almost like having like a rock in your shoe permanently that you can't get rid of. So you can imagine this is very painful for those cats. This is something that we hear frequently. So many cats seem fine after a declaw, and the, the key word there is seem. So felines are a known stoic species in the face of injury and disease. Veterinary clients are not trained in assessing animal pain or in making connections between behavior and illness. And reliable ass assessment of chronic pain requires a veterinary diagno diagnostic evaluation. You can tell from that x-ray, you know, most people would not have an idea that those uh, those toe fragments were there, but they, but they were. So another thing you might hear is, you know, do we need a law to, to prohibit declawing? Can't we just move towards laser surgery because sometimes it's perceived as being superior? That's a misconception. The research has shown that there's no significant differences with the laser except immediately post-operatively there's less bleeding. So after day two, all of, the, all of those um, potential problems that I discussed are still present. And uh, AHA, which is the American Animal Hospital Association, they did a survey of their membership um, in 2015, and only 12.2% of hospitals reported using a laser for declaws. So it's, it's sometimes asserted that, that those nail trimmers and scalpels are an archaic method, and that um, laser is being used more readily, and that's really not the case. The, the survey shows that uh, declaws, laser declaws are actually in the minority. And the, animal, the American Animal Hospital Association is an organization that it has a very strenuous accreditation process. Only 10% of veterinary hospitals are AHA approved. So that's kind of regarded as the creme de la creme in terms of technology and standard of care. So for only 12%, 12.2% of those hospitals to be using laser, it, it just shows that it's not, it's not as common as many would think. Um, I just want to talk about the evolution of declawing research a little bit. As of 2001, there was a JABMA published study that said, and this was kind of the summary of what was going on at the time, it seems unthinkable that an elective surgery performed on a quarter of owned cats could lack definitive evaluation, but that appears to be the case. So at that time, there really hadn't been much in the way of studies that were conclusive or that, that um, provided any strong evidence one way or the other. And that was obviously very problematic because this is a, a surgery that had been going on for 
decades and decades and decades. So by 2009, when some of the legislation started cropping up in California, one of the veterinary medical associations on the West Coast, uh, they compiled the research summaries of all the decoying research that had been done to date. So that was from 1993 to 2009. And if you, th this is a really good resource to go to if you're wanting to avoid cherry picking data on this issue, because if you look through those abstracts and read through, the, there's a repetitive finding of 50% of cats have or have immediate post-op complications and that 20% have evident long-term complications. So this is a procedure that has an extremely high complication rate. Um, in 2017, just this past spring, in the Journal of Feline Medicine and Surgery, which is one of our major veterinary journals, there was uh, a study published on pain and adverse behavior in declawed cats. You can see from this conclusion that we've come an extremely long way. This is verbatim from the study. Declawing increases the risk of long-term or persistent pain, manifesting as unwanted behaviors such as inappropriate elimination, which is soiling and urinating outside of the litter box, or aggression biting. This is not only detrimental to the cat, pain is a, way, a major welfare issue and these behaviors are common reasons for relinquishment of cats to shelters, but also has health implications for their human companions as cat bites can be serious. So that's kind of a segue into public health and declawing. This is something that comes up very frequently. Cat bites do have a dangerously high infection risk Cat bites, if you've ever known anyone who's been bitten by a cat, um, it warrants a minimum of antibiotics, even in healthy individuals. So you can imagine how serious this would be with immunocompromised people to be bitten by a cat. Whereas cat scratches are typically just treated at home with, with soap and water, cat bites are extremely serious because of the shape and of the cat's tooth and how far it penetrates. It's very easy for bacteria to get not only into the skin, but into the bone. So the Mayo Clinic reports that one in three patients with cat bites needed to be hospitalized, and two-thirds of those needed hand surgery. So this is a major problem. Um, in, in 2009, not surprisingly, the National Institutes of Health, the CDC, and the Infectious Diseases Society of America all jointly stated that declawing is not advised for cats of the immune compromised. So another question you'll sometimes hear is, uh, will cats end up in shelters if declawing is banned? Not only is this contradicted by the current shelter data that we have from areas <laughs> where declawing was banned, but also um, it's, it's been in the record for a long time. Uh, the top two behavioral reasons that cats are surrendered to shelters are house soiling and aggression biting, which both of which, according to the study that I mentioned and according to many studies, this, and, and definitely, um, you know, the experience of a lot of veterinarians is, is that's, uh, that's what's happening. So another, another question is, does, does medication counteract declaw pain? In terms of the fallibility of declaw pain medication, there's, there's a couple of, there's a list of uh, reasons why declaw pain medication can be fallible. One is that the wrong type may be used. A type is often used that's ineffective in cats. Um, a too short duration. Some of these cats only go home with three to seven days worth of pain medicine. That's actually the standard, is three to seven days post-op. And, um, and many cats have pain not only for weeks or months afterwards, but they have pain lifelong. So that medication is obviously not going to do anything about that. Um, lack of client compliance is always an issue. If we send them home with you know, eight, eight to, every eight to 12 hour pain meds, it doesn't mean that they're gonna get that, especially because cats are notoriously difficult to medicate for a lot of people. Um, and the other problem, believe it or not, is that sometimes pain meds are just not prescribed. 30% um, 
of vets in a study that was done in 2000 surveyed, reported sadly that they did not even use pain medicine at all for decoil. So I guess we'd be remiss to be uh, supporting a law if we weren't going to give some ethical solutions other than um, declawing to, to take care of these problems with, with scratching. Um, the first thing is the right scratching posts, and I'm, I'm, sure, um, I'm sure we'll hear more about this, but uh, regular nail trims are also important. There, for, for those who aren't into doing either of those or unable to, nail cap products exist also. There's, there are these little uh, things called soft paws, which are little plastic or acrylic caps that you can put on the nails to prevent scratching, and those can be placed on at a veterinary hospital. Um, alternative furniture placement or upholstery is, is often overlooked because it's not a veterinary issue, um, but it's really important to know that cats usually don't scratch at microfiber, velvet, or vinyl, so in, in terms of an alternative solution, that's, that's an easy one. Um, scratches to humans, uh, the CDC recommends avoiding rough play with cats and also flea control to prevent uh, cat scratch fever, which, which happens very rarely, but sometimes it comes up when the opposition is talking about this bill. Um, cat scratch fever is actually spread not by bacteria in the cat's nail, that's a popular misconception. It's spread by flea feces from the cat's body that have you know, scratched that the, the cat will, when, if the cat scratches a person, can put it in there, but it's not, it's not actually from the nail itself. So the, the best way to, to deal with that is, is flea control. So declawing is, is banned in many areas across the world. The United Kingdom, Switzerland, Sweden, Austria, Norway, this, this list of European countries. There are many others. That's not an exhaustive list. And declawing is actually not performed in most of the world. It tends to be more, more of an American problem than anywhere else. So in terms of current positions, the American Veterinary Medical Association, they revised their statement in 2016. They do provide an outline for client education on avoiding declawing on their website, but they do retain this statement, which has been semantically revised, uh, but it maintains their same premise, which is where scratching behavior is an issue as to whether or not a particular cat can remain as an acceptable household pet in a particular home, surgical onychectomy may be considered. So that statement is essentially the reason the, our last remaining justification for declawing cats in the profession. And the criticisms of that are, are that it, it seems to be, or it could be perceived as condoning emotional blackmail from clients because it's reinforcing this myth that if, if, uh, if a client comes in and, and says and threatens a veterinarian that if you don't declaw my cat, I'm going to dump it or I'm going to kill it or something horrible, that you know, we should believe that and we should succumb to that and declaw the cat, which we also know is, a, is a, an injurious procedure to the cat. So the other issue is, is this maintaining a loophole, this statement, because 24.4% of cats are declawed, so that's clearly not a last resort, and veterinarians are using that statement potentially to keep declawing. And that amounts to over 14 million cats, and that is actually the AVMA's own number. Other declaw positions are not, are not uh, in line with that. The American Association of Feline Practitioners are opposed to declawing. That's their statement. There is no current peer-reviewed data definitively proving cats with destructive behavior are more likely to be euthanized, abandoned, or relinquished. The decision of whether or not to declaw should not be impacted by these considerations. The Canadian Veterinary Medical Association takes a similar stance. They do not consider declawing to be a justifiable alternative to relinquishment. And the American Animal Hospital Association that I mentioned previously, they are also strongly opposed, and they go out of their way in their position paper to debunk 
the public health myths about decline. So the pending effort to ban decline in New York State, I think Jane already talked a little bit about this, but New York State has Bill A595-S3376. More than 145 New York State veterinarians and over 50 animal rescue and protection organizations have endorsed the bill. It has bipartisan sponsorship in the New York State Legislature, and it, it is opposed by the New York State Veterinary Medical Society. It's, it's important to know that they don't necessarily speak for the majority of veterinarians in New York State, even though they may claim to. In fact, less than 50% of New York State vets are members of the of this society, and their members are not polled for their, for their opinion on legislative matters. They have expressed an aversion to legislative regulation and have implied that regulation of decline will somehow be injurious to vets. Um, however, I just want to end with this slide because I think these represent vets that are not necessarily being accounted for by the veterinary medical associations, which are not always ruled democratically. They, they are typically, they are typically a, a group of 10 or so executives that are making a decision and it is not coming from a member polling. So there was a recent survey, this is just two weeks ago, this was published in the uh, veterinary record of the British Medical Journal. It was an anonymous survey of 484 U.S. veterinarians on ethical dilemmas in small animal practice. And 20%, only 20%, indicated that other vets prioritize patient interests during client-patient conf conflicts of interest. So 50%, only 50% said that they prioritize the patient's interest. So that's, those are very, very sobering statistics. Um, and the question that might be asked is, well, are the vets being uncaring or selfish or greedy? And only 3%, you know, it, what it is is that these veterinarians, based on this study, and, and certainly my experience is that many of these vets are suffering in their workplace. Um, like I said, only 3% said they prioritize their own self-interest. The other 47% are reported that they are appeasing the client. So that's regardless of what it does to their patient. That's regardless of the effect that it has on their medical recommendation. So when they're appeasing the client, I think a lot of veterinarians are doing what they're taught to do in vet school. What I was taught to do in vet school is the customer is always right. And I always like to say we're not dealing with ice cream sundaes. We're dealing with living patients. So uh, more than, and clearly it's not working out well for us as a profession because more than half of the respondents of this survey indicated that ethical dilemmas are a, a leading cause of their work-related stress. So it, it can certainly be argued that removing probably our most notorious ethical dilemma, which is decline, would improve the psychological state of the veterinary profession and definitely contribute to the well-being of this profession. So in summary, I guess I would say that declawing, it not only helps the cats, it not only helps, it not only helps the cats to prohibit declawing and helps the clients, um, you know, to not, to not be misguided on this procedure any longer, but also, but also um, it helps the veterinarians who are underrepresented in these veterinary medical associations. So that is my last slide. Thank you. Um, so now we're going to ask um, Dr. Hart to speak. Uh, there was a uh, New York Times um, in December of 2015 opi opinion page um, about 
you know, there is room for debate is usually what those are called. And Dr. Hart um, expressed what I thought was some really interesting aspect, I mean, uh, take on this, which is really what we should first be doing is modifying the behavior um, to avoid decline. Um, so, Dr. Hart, can you hear us? Okay, so what we're going to do, since Dr. Hart cannot see his slideshow, though he has it on his phone, we're so technological here, um, if you just say, Dr., next slide, when, um, and we'll move the slideshow here. Do you have his up? Okay. All right. Carry on. It's working. It's a miracle. Uh, 
bird marking behavior of spring. So that, can, that is a very important problem, and, and uh, we've resorted to uh, psychotropic drugs to deal with it, but that's enough for another lecture. Uh, and then scratching trees or furniture. Now, and if you look at a cat, you know, I guess a feral cat or you know, a neighborhood cat, or, or you imagine cats living in nature, they scratch trees as territorial markers. Now they choose a prominent tree. They choose a tree that other cats wandering through their neighborhood are going to, to see that has been scratched up because there is a visual mark. They look at that, and then they also leave secretions from the foot glands. And that gives them a, a, a order, um, signature order. So the cat has a signature, and the other cats know, oh yeah, this is occupied by so-and-so. And, -so. and um, so that's, that's a, how that behavior is used, and it's, it's a highly selected, it's an evolved behavior pattern that has a purpose. So then, looking at um, scratching as a type of territorial marking, but now, um, kind of including the house, or comparing the house with, with the, with the with the natural situation. As I said, they select a, a prominent tree. Can you, are you here by, oh, I'm just going on. Can you hear me? Yeah, just remember, yes, yeah, no, just remember to tell us to move the slide when you're ready for that. What's that? Just remember to slide, move. Slide, to show the cat scratching the tree. Are we on that slide? Yes. Okay, and one gentleman in the front there gives a thumbs up when it's working. Great, thank you. <laughs>
school for, for, for clients and even veterinarians understand this. Um, forget trying to, try to train the cat not to scratch. You know, people might say, look, can I just have my, I just teach my cat, no, don't do that. Don't do it ever again. You know, that's not going to work. Right? <laughs> 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 into the cat's brain. Uh, provide an appeal to scratching bolster board. Now, appealing scratching post. You go down to the pet store and you buy a scratching post. They like to make them look nice and sturdy. They want to, you know, so they act to wear out over time. But a cat doesn't want that. They want something that's easily scratched. So they, um, they, uh, you know, something that looks like you could draw your claws through and get a nice long drag. So finally, if they get a scratching post going, they do get it scraggly. And uh, then that's what they like. And then the owners say, oh, they've worn this thing out. I better get a new one, you know. No, smell them. <laughs> feels the way they like it. Smell them the way they like So leave that one in there. And uh, when you have to replace it, take the old cloth that it
Yes. Okay. All right, good. Um, there's a couple points I mentioned here, and I'll say a little bit more about them in, in the next slide here. Um, consider the brain to, re to, to reduce scratching. People wow. more commonly now going for purebreds. So you can see something that they ask you about a cat brain. Um, you can um, and give them some hints or some uh, suggestions. And then um, the other adopting the kitten or bring a kitten in. Think about the scratching problem, the potential scratching problem, before the cat's even brought in. And I'm going to say something about that in these next two slides. So for the next one, the next slide says bring profiles. And um, bring profiles behavior. And I uh, and I'm going to show you one graph in that book. This is a book that we uh, published back in uh, 2013, interviewing uh, 80 feline practitioners about all 12 different behavioral patterns of, of 15 different breeds of dogs, plus domestic short hair and domestic long hair. And so there's a discussion of the different behavioral characteristics. So you get a kind of a behavioral profile of different breeds of cats. That's all available, Purdue University Press. And um, so here's one on, on furniture scratching. And furniture scratching, I, I didn't think there would be any, any difference between breeds of cats and tendency to scratch furniture. You know, I haven't had many cats in, in, my, in, in my career, uh, mostly dogs, but I had a, a couple, but I never would have guessed it was a breed difference in scratching tendencies. But uh, there certainly is. At least the top in this graph here shows, it shows a bar graph, horizontal bars. This is um, the ones with the, the, the longest bars, the strongest tendency to scratch furniture, and are certainly significantly different than the, than the, the middle group. <coughs> me. And, and also at the top, they're the least, you know, the Persian, the least likely to scratch. And the Sphinx, um, the Cornish Rex, and the Ragdoll. So someone says, yeah, I think I like a ragdoll, but I don't want my furniture scratch. Well, they're, they're, on this, they're on the low end. They're going to be really different than, than the middle of the group for, for a ragdoll. They, they don't want a version. So that's, you know, they, they get the, that kind of graph, by the way, for, for all of these, for 12 different behavioral traits, and they want some guidance on that. All right, I'm going to go on to the next slide, welcoming the new feline family member. It's on, and it's, re, it's re, um, looking at reducing problem behaviors before they even start. So, um, you, <laughs> you make most of the cat material ever happy. So, look, we'll look at scratching, and then I'll just say a word about litter box uh, because they kind of go together. So, uh, this is on, on kind of welcoming the new cat. So, here. Um, Managing your scratching problem to avoid scratching behavior. The principle is to go back, they go back to the same spot. That's really important when going back to the same spot over there. So you can get them started on something good, I want to stay with it. Okay. Um, if you have to buy a new scratching post, your client does, um, go down to the store and, and keep in mind, the client should keep in mind, that you want this scratchable. So I suggest you get a wire brush and do some preliminary scratching form. Get a nice long, so you get a nice long drag. So you take a wire brush and go up and up and down. So it looks like it's been scratched before. It looks like a natural place. Then that's a good time then to rub the kitties 
uh, feet on, on that scratching part there, so it smells like a scratching post. Okay? And they'll say, well, this is got my smell on it. You're not, you're not teaching about a, a, a scratching horse. You're just rubbing some scratches. By the way, people ask, what if I put catnip on the scratching post? Well, you know, I don't know if this is going to make that work, but it seems to me you don't want your cat flipping out on a scratching post, right? I don't suggest that. I think catnip is a fun toy, but you know, not, not in that context. Okay, um, the best one here, this, this is really good to have it. I made this point in the book, and I made it when I took uh, continued education talks, but I don't think it's gone, gone over very well. When you, when you, from looking at a kitten from a natal home, a breeder, or even a shelter, um, ask if you can, and you say, is that kitten I'm getting here? This use a scratching post, you're a scratching board. And they, um, I say, yeah, I use this this once a look. I love to buy that scratch. I'll, I'll get you a new one. I love to take that one home. So the cat I'm getting, the kitten I'm getting, knows where to scratch. Um, and I'll even buy you two new ones, you know. But that's, it's an important one to get my cat feeling that that is the place they're supposed to scratch. And if, if it won't go to the places, that's what they're doing. So you're, you're from, you bring that from the data if you can. Um, and then put it in, in, a, in a conspicuous place. And um, they, they, you know, you've got, the, you got a grid, strong possibility that's just going to stay with that. Okay, again, breeds need extra attention, uh, especially in this regard, to be the Bengal, Abyssinian, and Siamese. So you get a, you want to go, you know, people love the Bengal cat, at least they do in California. They, they, they love the, the Bengal cat because they look so natural. You know, Asian leopard cat is where they stem from. It's a hybrid cat, half, you know, Southern California originated, and uh, someone crossed an Asian leopard cat that she, that she picked up at a, curated from the zoo and crossed it with some, uh, I don't know, Persians and stuff and got a, um, and got a, 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 got the breed true and then they, they got yeah, their uh, wild looking cat. So, um, if, you're, uh, if you're gonna get a Bengal then, yeah, really try to get the uh, native, the native um, scratch eagles. Okay, then, um, Manage and what to say, by the way, you're at the, you're at the shelter or the breeder and you say, I'm, you know, I'm glad you're going to give me the, the, the scratchy pole. Can I take the litter box as well? Again, I'm using that. Then the cat, then the kid goes, meet you where you use, you know. Instead of going and buying a brand new litter box, brand new litter that doesn't sell anything, doesn't smell anything like a, a toileting place, you buy the one the cat's been using. They know immediately where to go. So the right at home, in the new home, Scratchy pulse that smells natural and or it smells like that and a litter box. So um, I haven't seen I haven't seen shelters or even breeders buy into this, but it makes <laughs> makes a lot of sense to me immediately. Okay, and uh, for, for just as a side here, uh, cats needing extra attention if you got a litter box, what is it being particularly important would be the person. Okay. Um, so I'm getting uh, on my talk, I got, I'm on my last slide, says, when could decline be justified? Um, probably a little risky here, I'm bringing this up here, but I just want to mention it. Um, I wouldn't have thought of this had it not that be that in the bottom there, you see that paper, Hart, Thinkman, Willis, Lyons, Hart. Uh, um, we just finished this paper, it's, you know, it, it's just online, right?
some children to be really an important link in the current tool. We'll, we'll, we'll tell you that. And we, we just uh, we published that in Frontiers of Veterinary Science. And um, so it means that for some children, some cat, this, this cat is essential. Now, autistic children don't necessarily know you can't talk to them. I mean, many children, you can't talk to them. So you can't say, don't be too rough with the cat like you could with your own child. Uh, so you, you know, they make it in there, they might want to pull the cat back or pull his ear when the cat wants to get away and not let it go. And if the cat's a little bit on the irritable side, they may scratch. And they just close in, and I think an autistic child that gets a very painful scratch, it could be uh, quite traumatic to the child. So I haven't gone into this, I haven't seen it. I uh, didn't come up with any of the uh, many parents who interviewed for this paper, but if a veterinarian uh, heard about that and the, the client said, you know, I want, what can we do to keep the cat? I would say that, you know, there might be a place for a careful um, uh, decline, removing the total of third families would be, would be justified. So I just tossed that out. I, I don't know of an example. I just, you know, as I said, we thought of it, we did that paper. So those are my comments. Again, um, to, to summarize what I, I, I'm trying to emphasize, um, using the behavioral approach, trying to understand the purpose of scratching and, and um, educating the clients to why the cats do that and then look at the scratching problems in that context. So with that, I'm going to wrap up and go to on the next, last slide. Thank you, slide. Um, <laughs> thanks for your attention. And I was I enjoyed um, participating in this conversation here. And it surprises me uh, that this era is really moving forward, and I think it's it's um, it's a welcome move. And I um, I, I hope we, we can you know handle our 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 um, you know the, the pub. Uh, educate the public as well as our clients in, in, in dealing with this problem. So thank you. Great. Thank you very much. And now we're going to turn to Dr. Conrad. I actually wanted to finish her bio because it's actually quite impressive. She was the 2012 recipient of the Humane Society Veterinary Medical Association's Veterinarian Advocate of the Year. She is the author of The Deleterious Effects of, I Cannot Pronounce It, Decline in Exotic Phthalids and Reparative Surgical Technique and the director of a documentary, The Paw Project, which as I mentioned is outside if you'd like to take a copy. That's courtesy of The Paw Project. Um, she was the originator and carried forth the um, campaign that got bans enacted in eight California cities and Denver, Colorado. She maintains a private practice in Santa Monica, California, and is a member of the American Veterinary Medical Association, the American Association of Zoo Veterinarians, and the European Association of Zoo and Wildlife Veterinarians. So without further ado, she will take us home tonight on this discussion. Thank you very much. Um, thank you to Lori for inviting us and for holding this discussion, and thank you to Jane for moderating it. And I'd also like to thank my colleagues, uh, Susan Wittred and Eileen Jefferson, for being on the pro-ban coalition. And finally, I would like to thank Jim Jensvold for always being part of the PAW Project. My name is Jennifer Conrad. I'm a veterinarian. I actually am uh, a wildlife veterinarian 
And today I'm going to discuss three points with you. The first is that there's growing evidence that declawing is uh, problematic for cats and really deleterious to their health. The second is that declawing is illegal in much of the rest of the world as it should be here. And the third is that a growing number of veterinarians are signed on to banning declawing and we want to uh, become a nation that doesn't declaw because really we are, the United States and Canada are the last places that declaw on this planet really. This is why I got interested in declawing. As a young veterinarian, I had a patient who was declawed as a baby, and by the time he was four, he couldn't walk, and so he was dumped in a refuge, and his pain is so palpable that I, I felt I had to do something. Now, remember, the veterinary oath is above all, do no harm. How could I not do something for him? So let's discuss the normal anatomy of a paw. This is a lion paw. I use the big cats to remind, uh, to, it's easier to see. The anatomy is the exact same as in a domestic cat, but it's just so much easier to see. So the big cats have three bones in their toes, just like the little cats, and uh, just like we have three bones in our fingers and toes. They also walk on a, on a uh, supple, plump um, pad and this cushions every step. It also makes the cat more or less silent when it walks. Now, when you hear a dog walk onto the floor, you hear the nails. But a cat has retractable claws. The claws flip up, and they walk on the joint between the second and the third phalanx, between the second and third bone. And that keeps the nail sharp so that when the cat needs it, they can use it. It's sharp. It's silent. It is yet another thing that's magnificent about cats. This is a cutaway of a cat, um, the toe bones, and you can see there are three bones and how the third phalanx sits up. When they declaw a cat, they can use this method called a full disarticulation, or where they cut through the bone, I mean through the joint, leaving, taking the entire bone. Now the problems with this is that the digital pad, that thing that I told you about that cushions every step, will begin to retract proximally in the paw, on the paw and no longer protect the cat's stepping so that the, this hammer toe will happen where the second phalanx begins to poke through. And this is a bobcat. This is, again, it, just bigger for you to see, but it is in, absolutely what happens in domestic cats as well. This is a cougar with osteomyelitis. Um, if, you can, if you look, um, you can see that this sort of, this bone here uh, is highly infected. And that is because this cougar was walking on this bone. There was no digital pad to protect it. Don't worry, I did fix this pause, so don't get too upset. Um, and the digital pads weren't there to protect the bone, and the cat was walking and got gravel impacted in the bone. So veterinarians, instead of quitting declawing, they came up with another method of declawing. And this is called the partial disorder. Uh, disarticulation or partial amputation. What they do is they leave the um, flexor tubercle, they leave part of the bone in the paw so that they, the anatomy is still pu pulled somewhat forward. Unfortunately, it, what happens is the animal begins to walk on what I call a pebble in the shoe. Now that is a very mild way of talking about it. It is really a sharp bone shard, completely irregular, 
very, it's got to be very painful for the cat to walk on that. And this is an example of a jaguar. He was declawed, and you can see that his third phalanx is still there. And why, what happened was his, that when they crushed the bone, the nail tissue, which is, you know, nails on our fingers grow from skin, but in animals, they grow from the bone. And that is why they have to amputate the bone in order to declaw a cat. So when you crush the bone, and you could leave nail tissue, and this poor jaguar had this huge abscess, which is growing nail in his paw. This is a leopard, and she was declawed in the same method, but they took more bone, and you can see that this is the third phalanx right here, and, and what she was walking on was a pebble in the shoe. And, and you can actually see that there's a little bit of osteomyelitis already forming in this cat. Osteomyelitis meaning infection of the bone. Again, a tiger, I just use these to illustrate the problem. The, the tiger with nail regrowth, this is nail coming through his paw. Oh. Here's his paw right before we did uh, revision surgery to repair his declaw. And the, these are his radiographs, and you can see the amount of nail growing underneath his skin. And uh, that's what we ended up removing. Now, can you imagine? Those were all infected and the size of them, and I don't even want to tell you what the smell was like, but the the poor cat had been walking on those, and he was only four years old and, and having to deal with this much pain. So I began to repair the paws on these big cats, and this is an African lioness, and she was declawed with the method of leaving part of the bone, and this is the bone, and you can actually see how ragged it is and how sharp it is and what that might have been like for her to walk on. And um, th this is opening up the, the toes and the amount of pus. And this is closing the toes. And you can see that one of the aspects of the surgery is that we pull the anatomy forward so that the pad now protects that second phalanx when they walk. This prompted a paper which we wrote uh, about the deleterious effects of declawing in these big cats. And, um, and it really changed declawing of big cats in the United States. The USDA signed on saying that as a regulation that they would no longer accept uh, declawing of big, uh, wild and exotic cats. And in California, we actually passed a ban of um, declawing of wild and exotic cats. Um, and that was, that was the first big movement on declawing. But all along, people asked me, what about the little cats? And being very much involved in little cats and, very, and care, caring so much about little cats, I felt compelled that we must do something for the little cats. After all, a claw is a claw. This is the uh, lion claw and a domestic cat claw. Declawing in, in uh, domestic cats is the same as big cats. It's either a full art, uh, disarticulation and with the same problems of osteomyelitis and uh, of the second phalanx hammer towing through the skin because the pad isn't there to protect it. It doesn't matter if they're declawing with laser. Laser is still an amputation. It still causes an amputation. It still causes the same problems. And unfortunately, 
people will say that it's pain-free, but there's no indication. It's still cutting nerves. This is a complication that is not widely known about declawing, and that is that um, when, you lose, when you use a laser, you can cause what's called um, a fourth-degree burn, which is a new term for many people. Fourth degree means burning of the bone. As Dr. Jefferson said, uh, declawing with a Resco nail clipper is by far the most common. It is taking a nail clipper and guillotining that bone in half. Can you imagine how much pain that causes? And yet it's the most common way that veterinarians are declawing. This is a domestic cat and I just wanted to show it to you because you can see it's the exact same problem that I showed you in the leopard of the, the retained P3 fragments. And you can see this one has nail regrowth. And this is a cat who had nail regrowth coming through the skin. Um, Uh, so it's well known that there are problems with declawing. Here it is in a journal article. It doesn't matter what kind of method you use to declaw. It's well known that they have problems. The laser is just as much problem uh, with uh, the ret retained um, P3 fragments or and the scalpel with nail regrowth. It's, it doesn't seem to matter. So we know that we're doing we're causing trouble with declawing. This. I wanted to show you because this is a collection of P3 fragments, the little tiny bones left in cat paws. And uh, this is from a colleague of mine at Paw Project Utah. These are the cats she's had to repair single-handedly when the veterinarian who profited from the declaw will not address the problems these cats are having. Some people will say declawing causes no problem and they will say, oh, my cat doesn't have any issue. But I wanted to show you that sometimes it's very subtle. This Abyssinian cat was declawed about six months before he lost his home and was in a rescue. And you can see that the normal pad shape of his back feet, but just six months, he already has atrophy of his front. So why legislation? Well. It's because it seems to be the only way. Laws may change the may not change the heart, but they can restrain the heartless. And that is where we're at right now. We have to protect cats. We need the law. The legality and ethics of declawing, let's just talk about that. First of all, there are laws against declawing in much of the rest of the world. And where there aren't laws in much of the rest of the world, declawing is simply not performed, so no law is necessary. This is because veterinarians find it to be unethical mutilation. Um, declawing is considered by veterinarians in this country, as well as in Canada, these are the last places where we declaw, uh, to be unethical, but not enough to make the laws. There are many veterinarians who are still doing it. And um, just so you know, people in those countries where declawing is illegal or considered unethical are not dying from cat scratches. And people and cats in those countries are not dying because they can't be declawed. 
This is the veterinarian who first described declawing. He, declaw he described it in 1952 in the Journal of the AVMA. It's a letter to the editor where he describes cutting the nails, uh, cutting the bones of these cats with woefully inadequate, inadequate um, anesthesia. But this is a, from 1952. The veterinarians in this country have had 65 years to police themselves, and they haven't. And this is why we are calling on the legislature. We must get help from you. We, are, we have failed as veterinarians to police ourselves. We must get help from, by making it absolutely illegal. There, there are multiple precedents for, for banning declawing. Now, even though it's not done in the UK, um, the, the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons has a position statement that's very strong against declawing. They call it mutilation. All these countries who will ha also have autistic children and also have people with thin skin and grandmas on Coumadin, they all ban declawing. Veterinary Ireland is particularly interesting because, first of all, they're equ the equivalent of our AVMA. They're equ the equivalent of the Trade Association. But they say it's clearly an act of mutilation and that it should not be performed. And they go so far to say that if any veterinarian were to perform it, that they would be subject to uh, action. And uh, they also do a little dig on the United States by saying it's routine here. Just because that was intense, here's a nice picture of claws. <laughs> so who supports the ban on declawing? Well, major animal welfare organizations supports, support the ban on declawing. And rescue groups, the little guys in the street, they want to see a ban on declawing because they know in their contracts they put the language to say, do not declaw our cats. Why is that? Well, most of them... Uh, whom I've interviewed say, well, we don't want our cats declawed and then coming back to us because then it's impossible to find them a home. We want people to deal with claws. If you love cats, part of what a, a cat is is it scratches. Deal with it appropriately, like Dr. Hart said, and never declaw. Other uh, proponents are a growing number, uh, you know, growing number of veterinarians are signing on to ending declawing. And of course, all cats are against declawing. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the opposition? Well, the veterinary trade organizations. As Dr. Jefferson said, they don't want to be regulated. And I understand that. But they have failed to regulate themselves. And this is why we are calling on the legislature. They have failed miserably. And we cannot um, allow this to happen anymore in our country. So these are the myths that you will um, hear perpetuated by the opposition. Oh, um, you know, de declawing is super rare. Well, no, it's not. 25% of American cats are declawed. Oh, declawing is so much better than it used to be, and we can use the laser and it's pain-free, or we have to do it because of immunocompromised people, or, um, you know, we really, really went to vet school to protect couches, so that's why we do it, or... Um, <laughs> or the declawing, uh, if, if a ban went into place, there would be a massive relinquishment of cats. There would be this deluge of cats dumped in the pound if a ban went into a place. Well, that's kind of laughable because I got to show you um, the literature. 
So this is uh, the literature on declawing. And as Dr. Jefferson said, in 2001, there was an article that said it, it seems unthinkable that a, a, a procedure that is so common that in some places it's almost 50% of cats are declawed would be uh, have limited description in the literature. But that is the case until recently. But what do we know? We do know that declawing is a severe pain. In fact, it's so painful that it is used as a, uh, for clinical trials. It is used because it's so predictably painful. They use it in clinical trials. We do know that there's a chronic pain syndrome where cats are, are um, going to have pain for the rest of their lives. And this is a veterinary article on how to rescue cats from pain that they are going to have from the rest of their lives from an unnecessary procedure that they didn't need to have that a veterinarian performed on them. In this article, they talk about the chronic pain, but they also talk about behavior issues. And as Dr. Jefferson said, Remember that the number one and number two behavioral reasons why a cat loses its home are not using the box and aggression, and both of them are absolutely related to or caused by declawing. There's also this idea of neuroma formation. Now, neuromas are indicative of chronic pain, and whenever you cut a nerve, you are going to get a neuroma. Now remember that a neuroma is what causes phantom pain. So can you imagine what those cats might be feeling in their paws as far as phantom pain? How can this be happening when we know all these horrible things about declawing? Well, unfortunately, veterinarians don't seem to see it. They don't give much in the way of pain medications because remember that uh, they don't, they're not the vet techs, the veterinarians. They don't see what the vet techs see. And um, so as Dr. Jefferson said, that a, a poll of 1,000 veterinarians, 30% not giving pain medication. Can you imagine one of the most painful, routinely performed surgeries in all of veterinary medicine, and 30% of vets not giving any pain medication for it. This is because veterinarians don't realize that there are all sorts of pain medications for cats, but they always say cats don't do well on pain medications, so we give none. Another reason why they give none is because cat, uh, cats have a unique behavior. You know puppies are kind of weenies. They're like very demonstrative of their pain. <laughs> but a cat often will curl up in the back of a cage and be purring, but really be in tremendous pain. And the purring is not happy purring. It's a self-soothing. We know that cats self-soothe with purring. Also, veterinarians tend to trivialize declawing. They will upsell a spay or neuter with, hey, you want a deep claw with that? Like, hey, do you want fries with that? And um, this is one of the reasons why it's very, very prevalent. One of the other problems that we see in, in um, it for a reason for declawing is that apartments and landlords require it without really knowing that a declawed cat is going to not use the box. It's well established and therefore causing way more problem for the baseboards than the scratching would have been for the owner's furniture. So 
this is one of the reasons why, again, it has to be made illegal so that the um, landlords can't require it as a condition of tenancy. Uh, in this year, in May, I mean last year in May, uh, Dr. Uh, Nicole Moran came out, uh, Martel Moran came out with an uh, article proving that declawed cats, she did a, a, a study of, of clawed versus declawed cats and uh, declawed cats had way more pain problems and way more behavioral problems. So uh, when we looked at that one article about 2001 where it said it lacks um, definitive evaluation, well now it ha it's here. This is a 2017 article and it is absolutely describes what we all know that declawed cats have tremendous amount of, of pain and that they will have behavioral changes that are going to cause them to, you know, a lot of people say, I'd rather have a cat declawed than uh, dumped in the pound. But what they don't realize is a cat is going to be declawed and then dumped in the pound because of these behavioral problems. If, if an owner is intolerant of a cat scratching the couch, they're really going to be intolerant of the cat peeing on the couch. So this is why these cats are losing their homes. This is a um, quote from the um, president of the American College of um, Veterinary Behaviorists saying that declawed cats have behavior problems. It's, it's clear. We also know that they'll have surgical complica complications. 50% will have Im um, immediate complications, meaning swelling, uh, infection, all, just all these horrible things for 50% of the cats, and 20% will have lifelong complications. Can you imagine if there was a surgery that was performed on humans where 20% went wrong permanently? I think that it would be reevaluated. Um, one of the uh, reasons that veterinarians don't want declaw bans is because they don't want to be regulated. But what they really, uh, they don't have to worry about this because this is a medically unnecessary surgery. This is the Journal of the AVMA saying that declawing is a medically unnecessary surgery. It does not affect the doctor-patient uh, relationship because this is unnecessary, period, end and therefore not part of what a veterinarian should be doing. We also know that 76% of the declaws being performed are done on kittens, eight months old or, few, uh, or less. And so when you think about that, then how is this a last resort? How is this something that we are trying to um, eliminate when, when kittens are being declawed? How many people haven't had a, I mean, who hasn't had a crazy kitten? And then they grow out of the fact that they're clawing things. They grow out of the fact that they're um, climbing the curtains. So again, declawing as a last resort, which many of the veterinary associations will say it's the only time to condone it after all the humane alternatives have been tried, they're really not waiting for that. Eight months is still a baby. We, um, it says also, this is uh, statistics, that 95% of cats are declawed to protect couches. Again, this um, idea that this is the best way to protect a couch when there are humane alternatives to declawing that should be employed and um, everybody will be happy. 33% are declawed for no reason, which I always think is fascinating. So what about declawing and relinquishment? This argument that if we can't declaw cats, there's gonna be this massive deluge of cats. It's gonna be terrible. We, we're not gonna be driving the streets. It's gonna be amazing how many cats are dumped out. 
Well, what happened with these cats? They're declawed and they lost their homes. And uh, PetFinder finds this so often that they actually have a little icon, a little paw icon, to say that they're declawed. That's how often declawed cats are losing their homes. And Alley Cat Allies, which is our nation's largest group interested in um, keeping cats in their homes and, and protecting outdoor, you know, cats from having to be outdoors, they're in full support of the ban. Now, it, if, they, if they thought declawing kept cats in their homes, they wouldn't be. But they are in full support because they know that declawing does not keep a cat in its home. And one thing that we found, which I think is really remarkable and worth sharing, that in, uh, when we banned declawing in California, we banned it in eight cities, but five of those cities have their own municipal shelters. And we asked them for the, for the numbers of relinquished cats in the five years before the ban versus the five years after the ban. And in every single city that had their own, actually all the cities, but in every single city, they reported a decrease in the number of cats being relinquished after the ban. And in Los Angeles, that, that amounted to 43.3%. Now, can you imagine the size, I mean, the number of cats from a size of a city as sizable as Los Angeles? 43.3% translates to tens of thousands of cats who were not relinquished to the shelter. And the head of um, LA Animal Services, her name is Brenda Barnett, she attributes this marked decrease that happened just the year uh, between uh, when the ban started, it started to go down to the declaw bans because people were not dumping their cats because they couldn't stand the fact that the cat was peeing in, outside the box or biting more. So declawing bans seem to affect relinquishment rates, but in the, in the way that the opponents would never believe. They actually decreased the relinquishment rates. And as we talked about declawing and immunocompromised people, well, as Dr. Jefferson said, the CDC, the NIH, the U.S. Public Health Service, the Canadian Medical Association, the Infectious Diseases Society of America, and the American Cancer Society, and the American um, Hemophiliac Association, they all say, no, don't declaw a cat. And I believe the reason being that a declawed cat is more likely to bite. So you are actually jeopardizing the health of someone by, by putting them with a declawed cat. That cat is more temperamental, probably in some pain, and um, has to resort to its teeth to protect itself. So they're going to bite. And, he, and as Dr. Jefferson said, when you call the emergency room and you say, I got scratched by a cat, they'll say, wash it and watch it. But if you say I got bitten by a cat, they're going to say come in. It is that serious. So now we're giving these people a false sense of security by declawing the cat. And we really have to realize that, there, that, that although this sounds plausible that you want grandma to keep her cat, that it really isn't. It isn't protecting her at all. The pros of a declaw ban are that cats don't have to be in jeopardy of suffering for the rest of their lives from a 10-toe amputation. The data from shelters show that there was a decrease in relinquishment rate for cats. 
Veterinarians don't have to succumb to the emotional blackmail of a client saying, well, if you don't declaw my cat, I'm going to go down the street to the unethical vet who doesn't use pain medication because it levels the playing field. All veterinarians in New York State will be on the same playing field. They cannot do it. And the PAW Project and our vets won't have to be repairing the paws of all these declawed cats because somebody has to stop it so that we can catch up. There are thousands of cats on the list to have their paws repaired. And we can't do it unless it stops. We'll never catch up. Who else wants a declaw ban? Well, the International um, Society for Feline Medicine, they call declawing mutilation and they call it unethical, and they are calling for a ban. This is why it has to be banned, because we cannot, the more veterinarians who become enlightened and they stop declawing, there's always that one guy who says, bring me your uh, cats, I'll declaw them. In, in, um, in a study in North Carolina, they, even though veterinarians are giving up declawing because they have come to see the light of, of what a problem it is for their patients, there is always the one guy who's doing it. And, and in North Carolina, the, the um, rate on a paper that was recent in the last year or two said still 20% of cats are being, are being declawed. It's not decreasing. It's just that more vets are giving it up and, and, and it, other vets see this as a business opportunity. Again, this is why it has to be illegal. And finally, I wanted to thank Linda Rosenthal, who's our champion here in New York. And Rubio, our spokes, um, a Paw Project spokes cat, who couldn't be here tonight, but <laughs> wanted to Skype in because he loves this project. Um, he, uh, uh, Linda Rosenthal has been a champion. We've had this legislation. This was the fourth year. And with your help, we will continue it and we will win this year. So let's just hope that, um, that we can do this with the legislator, leg, legislators because, again, there is no reason to declaw a cat. Thank you very much. I wanted to just read the actual language of the bill that's being proposed by Assemblymember Rosenthal and Senator Grillo. It says, prohibition of the declawing of cats. One, no person shall perform a declawing partial or complete phalanectomy or tendonectomy, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, procedure by any means on a cat within the state of New York, except when necessary for a therapeutic purpose. Therapeutic purpose means the necessity to address the physical medical condition of the cat, such as existing or reoccurring illness, infection, disease, injury, or abnormal condition in the claw that compromises the cat's health. Therapeutic purpose does not include cosmetic or aesthetic reasons or reasons of convenience in keeping or handling the cat. Any person who performs a partial or complete those procedures, on any cat within the state of New York shall be guilty of a violation of this section, which shall be punishable by a civil penalty not to exceed $1,000. And the act, if it passed, will take place, it will take effect immediately. So I am going to open us up to questions, uh, but first I wanted to thank these veterinarians and Dr. Hart for Skyping in with us. And actually, I think his um, 
presentation was really important because it puts the, the onus on the guardian owner of the cat to, to do what's necessary to keep the cat from engaging in, in what we can, might consider objectionable behavior, but as he pointed out, is completely natural to them. And there are ways to take care of that behavior. So I thank him very much for that part of the presentation. I thought that was really important. And the wealth of information um, by uh, Dr. Jefferson and Dr. Conrad was incredible. So with that, if anybody has any questions, please raise your hand. Right here. Can I say one thing? Speak really, really loud because we're videotaping and I want uh, Dr. Hart to be able to hear as well. Okay. I'm Joyce with Voters for Animal Rights and I first wanted to thank Dr. Hart because I think his presentation, like you said, James, is such a crucial part of this discussion and I feel it's not often discussed enough. Um, my prior job at HSUS, I ran a pet surrender prevention program and we were able to use um, Back there. Right, and in the back I mentioned Dr. Hart very kindly sent along notes which can be taken and given out to your veterinarian or, and then there's myths and facts versus uh, about declawing. Right back there.
Can you hear me? <laughs> Here we go. Yeah, the question was, what can people do if they're interested in, in helping to pass this legislation? What can they do individually? So, and why, so, so and, to, the, well, and the first part was why it has not passed in the, in the past. Yeah, so to answer your first question, the, the only opposition that we have that's an organized opposition to this bill is the New York State Veterinary Medical Society and to a lesser extent the Tech Association in New York State. The Tech Association, as far as I know, isn't actively lobbying against the bill, but they have put in a memo of opposition. The New York State Veterinary Medical Society has, has resisted this bill every year, and that is, that is really the primary reason why the bill doesn't go forward, is because the New York State Veterinary Medical Society has a platform that they represent the voice of veterinarians and that this bill is going to be adversely affecting veterinarians. So that's, that's the main reason that the bill hasn't passed. And we do have a great effort going. Like I said, 145 veterinarians. And that's not all the veterinarians in the state that support this bill. Those are just the ones basically in our contacts and those that we can reach because we don't have a method of reaching all the veterinarians in the state. So I like to think of those as the representatives. I know there are many, many veterinarians who either are very in support of this legislation or that really take kind of a neutral position. The, the vets who oppose this legislation, that actively oppose it personally, I would say are in the minority. There are some practice owners that have a personal reason, maybe financially, for not wanting the bill to pass. But you know, as I said in that last slide, the majority of veterinarians don't own practices. They, they are associate veterinarians. For every one vet that owns a practice, there are probably 10 who don't own a practice. They're not financially affected. It's just, it's very ingrained in the profession and they're, they're doing it for that reason, maybe for employer expectations, but it doesn't really benefit the average veterinarian. So um, in terms of your second question, definitely the, the best thing to do always is to contact your legislator and urge them to support this bill. We do have a lot of co we have two we have our sponsors and we have a lot of multi sponsors in the legislature. A lot of legislators are enthusiastic about this bill and signed on to it. Whether or not your legislator is one of those, you can if they are, you can contact them and thank them for supporting the bill. If they're not, you call you can call them um, and let them know this is something that's really important to you. It's important to your friends and to your family and uh, if you're a cat owner and you can tell them that you, you know, you're very apprised of the information on declawing and why it's a negative thing and that you, you want to see this bill pass. Another thing that you can do always um, is write a letter to the editor of your local paper. So any, any paper in, in New York City or you know, if any of you do not live in New York City, any, any local paper, if you write a letter to the editor and call attention to the issue and, and cite as many facts as you know and just make it strong for the case, um, not only will you be sending a message to the legislators, but you'll be sending a message to all the people in your community and, you know, maybe start a ripple effect. The, if you Google um, New York State Legislature, they have a wonderful website. It's very easy to find your senator or your assembly member, and it's very easy to find the bills. So I would suggest if you need information, uh, you know, uh, who is your representative, um, you can find it there. Um, I'd also just like to mention quickly that um, the New York State Veterinary Medical Society um, declined to send someone. I pursued them quite heavily, um, and they declined to send somebody to come and defend their position.
um, back there. Dr. Conrad? So, unfortunately, the vet, well, I think uh, the vets very often are not as evil as that they <laughs> aren't telling people. I think they, many vets just don't know the consequences of declawing because they declaw a cat and then the owner goes home with the cat, decides it's a bot surgery and just never goes back to that vet so that the vet doesn't have follow-up on their own surgery. But we're hoping that as we educate more and more vets and as more and more um, information that is peer-reviewed and evidence-based comes out, that veterinarians will begin to change their minds. And that is happening. There are veterinarians who say, I used to declaw every cat who came into my practice and then I started to realize what I was doing and now I'm so sorry that I did that. But unfortunately, when they stop declawing, Unless it's a law that, they, that all vets have to, what's going to happen is the client is going to go to a different veterinarian. And with, um, you know, there are, we get contacted, I would say at least weekly, of someone uh, writing that I didn't know what declawing was, my vet never told me, and now I think my cat's in chronic pain, what can I do? So the problem is it, it's really a big problem, and, and again, um, we don't have there's the cat doesn't have the right to be have the to be medically informed the person it, it's not happening and so that's why it just has to be illegal because there's nothing like saying I'm sorry I can't declaw your cat it is illegal <laughs> to stop people from doing it and to stop and then veterinarians have the protection of the law and it it is illegal we cannot do it again that's just why it has to be illegal. Right. Right. Next, and another question? Right there? I don't think we have statistics, but we would, I would say we have a lot of uh, veterinarians supporting us uh, um, in New York City. So I would say in, in New York that the predominant number of vets are, are from the city or from the, the area down here versus the upstate vets? We do. The majority of our 145 vets, a lot of them are from New York City. So I'm sure declawing is obviously still happening down here more than we would ever want it to, but I don't think it probably happens in urban areas as much as it happens elsewhere. The PAW Project has, has a list of um, vets who don't declaw on the website at, under the resources, so it's, it's across um, 
both Canada and the United States so people can look for a vet who has become enlightened and realizes not to, that it's not the, in the best interest of cats. And, and what's interesting is that many vets feel that they can't give up declawing because they're afraid of, that their practice, um, their gross will de de um, decrease from that. But what we found across the board is the vets who gave it up are seeing uh, uh, their practice boom. They're seeing an increase in clientele. They're seeing uh, increase in patient retention because once they're known as an ethical veterinarian, people want to go to them. Right there. Right, well, nobody's going to be allowed to declaw, but I think you can also tell what kind of vet they are by, uh, how, by how they're promoting themselves and what, what they consider important for animals. Like, do they consider that you have to vaccinate every six months versus the standard of now, which is now every three years? Those sort of are, are subtle indicators of what kind of vet you're dealing with. And whether they'll crop teeth—I mean, crop ears or, or uh, tail dock—or whether they'll file down teeth. Those are other indicators of what, uh, or debark, or devocalize. Those are indicators too. I was just going to say on, on that issue, <laughs> I'm not good with this microphone, um, on that issue, declawing is, is not actually taught in a lot of veterinary colleges, and that's not necessarily because they're opposed to teaching it for ethical reasons. It's just because this is one of those things, and we probably should have mentioned this earlier if we didn't, it's one of these things that it is often learned on the job. and. There is, there is a resistance in the veterinary educational system. So it's, it's not something that's, that's typically embraced to, to teach this because, honestly, declawing is just ignored in a lot of veterinary curriculums. Not only is it not taught as a procedure, but all of the ramifications of declawing are just, there's no place for it in the curriculum. They, they teach their surgeries that they teach. It's just like with, with a laser. I mean, lasers is, are something that you learn on the job if your practice happens to have one. There are certain practices that don't declaw. There are certain practices that maybe really will declaw only once a year. And then there are practices who are declawing the way they do spay-neuters, where it's just this routine thing and it's just part of their, their, um, their routine. So. In, in terms of uh, you know the educational system, it's it's not something 
that's that's there. So for us to, you know, we, we can't actually go in to the veterinary schools and and, and I do that. I go, I go, you know, I just went to the University of Pennsylvania College of Veterinary Medicine about two or three weeks, or about a month ago, and you, you can talk to the students and, and educate them on declawing. And you can see there's, there's rapt attention. They're really interested. We had 70 students turn out, and the, the review that we got for the presentation was overwhelmingly positive. And I think we maybe had one person contesting something that we said, and it was that they didn't believe that the nail trimmers and scalpels were the most common reason. They weren't aware because they had only worked in these high-end practices that were using laser. So they, they had no idea that it was such a problem. But other than that, you know, you, you can, that's one of the things that the Humane Society Veterinary Med Medical Association is very huge on is student outreach because you have to reach the students at the beginning because if you, if you try to reach them at the end, there's already a, a certain notion that might have been ingrained and it's, it's not something that typically happens in the curriculum. It actually happens in the extracurricular clubs that the, that the students are discussing this. So we do everything we can in that realm. But in terms of infiltrating into the curriculum of the veterinary colleges, it, it's very difficult to do that. I, I just have one thing to add to that. And that is that in, um, at Tufts, they don't teach declawing. But, and, and we always thought it was because of an ethical choice, but it really wasn't. It was because the veterinary medical teaching hospital didn't want to be in conflict with the practitioners around Boston who were um, referring, you know, uh, secondary cases to them. So they didn't want to be doing a surgery that would take money from the referral base. Cornell recently gave up declawing as something that they offer in their hospitals, which we're really happy to hear. But that's what's happening in the state of, of declawing. The other thing that we find is that it's not taught in the curriculum, so the students take it upon themselves. Their feline medicine groups will take it upon themselves to have declaw cadaver days, where they'll have um, poor little cadavers be declawed for students to practice. So again, this, <laughs> this is just, it's so overwhelming what's, how ingrained this is in our culture. And again, that is why it has to be illegal. Right here. Question. Oh, good. Nobody what year was that? Nobody wanted to charge it. It was uh, 2013. Okay. Nobody would touch it. You know, nobody wanted to charge it. So it's, I think it's a generational thing. I hope so. Yeah, you know, the Jesuit said, give me a boy when he's seven and he's mine for life. So if you get to the students, <laughs> by the time they're practicing, hopefully that will have ended. There was a question over here, I think, right there.
we, ha we provide a source with the name and we have affirmed that they actually do not declaw. Uh, but that is, the, that is really it as far as um, the vet list. Now, the HSVMA might have, uh, if they're a member of HSVMA, perhaps they're more enlightened and they don't declaw. So um, you could cross-check the two lists. I would recommend that you find a vet who's a member of HSVMA because, again, they're saying that they choose animal welfare over above all other things. I don't believe we have a public directory of the veterinarians, unfortunately, but it is something that you can ask, you know, ask the veterinarian if they're aware of it or if they're, what their feeling is on it. If they're highly averse to the HSVMA or they say something critical, then that suggests that they, they might be very business and monetary driven. You know, not that we don't want to make a living, but we're not going to do that at the expense of ethics, and that's essentially what we stand for. Any other questions? Okay, thank you very much for coming. Let's say thank you to the guests. And thanks to Dr. Hart for Skyping in.